official podcast of Church at the Well in Burlington, Vermont. For more information about Church at the Well, including gathering time and location, events, and how you can financially support the podcast, please visit us online at wellchurchvt.com. Well, a couple weeks ago, we started a new series in the book of Daniel. And the reason that we chose Daniel is because this book in the Old Testament addresses in detail the tension that we often experience today as followers of Jesus, uh, namely in this way. How do we, as people who participate and live in God's kingdom, also live in a post-Christian world? And make no mistake about it, we live in a post-Christian world. Um, The culture war was lost a long time ago. And to be frank, I'm not sure it should have even been fought in the first place because the culture war was was really fear-based. The the result of the culture war was the church, Big C Church, was fearful of losing her influence on the culture. And so they adopted an us-versus-them narrative And the church kind of went into survival mode. And when survival becomes the church's primary aim, she's already lost her way. And history tells us that the church has always thrived when it's been pushed to the margins, not the other way around. Jesus himself, he assured us that he would build his church, right? And the gates of hell would not prevail against it. So I'm not sure where all the fear came from. That started that, but the the church was afraid that she was losing influence on the culture and decided to go to war with the culture. Uh, That being said, following Jesus in in a post-Christian context has its challenges. Uh, One of the major hurdles that we face today as, as Christians living in the kingdom is the general belief that the church today really doesn't have anything significant of value to offer. I was having a conversation with someone this week in a coffee shop and I hadn't seen this person in a number of years and they know I'm a pastor. Uh, And we just started talking about church and and they said this comment and it's kind of a side comment, but they said, it's a shame that the church can't just meet in a school somewhere. And, And what she was saying, it really had a legitimacy to it. Because what she was saying is like, it's kind of funny that the church, they meet and they, they do business one or two hours a week, right? And yet they take up this space and have this facility, they have these resources, but they, they, what, what was, there was an undertone to what was said there, although there's truth to, to the statement, right? But there was an undertone there that kind of communicated this idea that businesses, clinics, schools, offices, they add value to a community, but the church just kind of takes up space. And much of that reputation is deserved, by the way, because the church has allowed herself to be defined by a building rather than a people, right? But there was something in the conversation that I just picked up on and said, yeah, there, there's this idea that the church In a post-Christian context, in a post-Christian world, the idea and the mindset is the church just doesn't have much of value to offer. And I think that's why we have to constantly be asking ourselves the question, if we weren't here, would we be missed? 
And if the answer to that question is no, then we have some problems. This, another post-Christian worldview that we face is that Christians are condemning, judgmental, small-minded, right? Holier than thou. And once again, a lot of that is deserved. We haven't done a great job as the church at large at speaking the truth in love. In fact, oftentimes we do the opposite. We try to speak truth outside of the context of love, and it doesn't even make sense. Because God's truth spoken outside of the context of love isn't comprehensible. It's not coherent. It doesn't make sense. And as a result, the church today is often known more for what we oppose than what we're for, which is really unfortunate. And so this is what I'm talking about. Like, what does it look like to live in the kingdom, but also to live in the post-Christian world? There's some complexity. There's some challenges. Add to that all the horrific sexual abuse and cover-up scandals in our religious institutions. Um, People are even more cynical toward faith. And again, deservedly so. Uh, After all, it was Jesus who, who said that if anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and drowned in the sea. Those are some strong words from Jesus. So, What's the world supposed to think when supposed spiritual leaders, right, are sexually abusing children, sexually assaulting women, right? Pastors, leaders, spiritual figureheads. And I I share all that not to just discourage you and say, wow, the church is just in really rough shape. That's not why I'm sharing all this. I'm sharing all this uh, to let you know that following Jesus today has some unique challenges, because of the post-Christian culture we live in. But we can rest assured in this, that Jesus is still committed to building his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he'll cleanse it and he'll bring justice because that's who he is. Amen? amen. If you didn't say amen to that, I was going to walk out those doors and go start another church. I'm so glad you guys say amen to that. <laughs> and what we see, what we have to do as followers of Jesus today is we have to learn how to hope in him and be faithful. And that's what I love about the book of Daniel. Because what we're going to see is Daniel and his three friends, who we're going to read about today in chapter three, they have to do this very same thing that I'm talking about. They have to figure out and navigate, how do I live and participate in the kingdom of God and yet also be a part of this other kingdom that doesn't line up? And so they had to navigate some unique challenges, and we can learn a lot from their story. So are you guys ready to jump into chapter three? I'm going to invite Matt to come up, and he's going to read our text this morning from Daniel chapter three. Oh, here. (laughs) You have to use a Bible instead of a, a paper. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and six cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officers to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officers assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. 
As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and the peoples of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some of the astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. Okay, so chapter 3 starts out with these words. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. If you were here last week, we looked at Daniel chapter 2, and Ian led us through that chapter. And he, we showed us that in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream about a statue. And he was so vexed by this dream that he threatened to kill his entire cabinet if they couldn't tell him what the dream was and then interpret it for him. So that gives us a little glimpse into what kind of person Nebuchadnezzar was. And Daniel and his three friends, of course, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are on his cabinet. So they're in this mess where they're about to be executed. And they go to God in prayer, and God miraculously reveals the dream and its interpretation to Daniel. And Daniel goes to Nebuchadnezzar, and he says, here was your dream, King Nebuchadnezzar. You dreamed about a statue, and it had four parts, four different types of metal, and they represent four different kingdoms. And so Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that in his dream, he says, you, O Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold on this statue, and that the other three kingdoms uh, that, that come after you will be inferior to you. And of course, it's amazing because he's prophesying about the future, and he's talking about Persia, Greece, and Rome as these other three kingdoms. And then Daniel goes on to say, and in your dream, you saw a rock, and it came hurling, and it smashed the statue, and the rock turned into a mountain. And of course, again, Daniel is interpreting this dream prophetically, and he's saying that that stone is referring to Jesus, whose scripture often refers to as the chief cornerstone, the rock of ages, the stumbling stone, right? That when Jesus comes, he'll establish his kingdom forever and ever. It'll become a mountain. And so Nebuchadnezzar is so impressed in chapter two that God gave Daniel an interpretation of the dream and gave him the, the, the dream itself that Nebuchadnezzar makes a declaration of faith in God. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 47, he says, he says this, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. And so you read chapter 2 and you're like, wow, that's amazing. What a powerful testimony. God told Daniel this dream and he gave him the interpretation. And this pagan Babylonian king is declaring who God is and the goodness of God and the glory of God. But then you get to chapter three and you're like, well, not so fast. 
because we find Nebuchadnezzar wavering in his faith. And and just a few verses later, he's building a gold statue and he's commanding everyone in his kingdom to bow down and worship it. And he says, whoever doesn't bow down and worship it, they're going to be burned alive in a furnace, which seems a little bit over the top to me. Again, gives us a little picture and glimpse into what kind of uh, leader Nebuchadnezzar was. And he gives specific instructions. He summons all of the cabinet, the officials, the citizens to this dedication ceremony. It's going to be a big thing. The statue is 90 feet tall, it says, and nine feet wide. And it has a whole band that's hired. And as soon as they play, he says, everyone's going to bow down and worship the golden image. Um, Now, we're not sure where Daniel is in chapter three. Maybe he had a sick day or he was doing some business away. He wasn't present at this. But Daniel's three friends are there, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they refuse to bow down when the band plays. And they're noticed by some of the other council members. Remember, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel are Jewish captives brought into exile. And so they're part of Nebuchadnezzar's cabinet, but there's other members of his cabinet that are local. They're not foreigners. And they probably didn't like it very much that these guys were getting promoted above them. And so they said, this is a way for us to get rid of these guys. And so they notice that they're not bowing down. And you can imagine it'd be pretty easy to spot, right? There's a whole crowd of people. The band's playing. Everyone's told what to do. Everyone lays prostrate to the ground with these three guys. And of course, you're going to see that, right? See, whenever you refuse to bow to the idols in your culture that everyone else is bowing down to, you're going to stand out. Every time. And I know that like in our time, we don't set up gold images in the streets and like tell people to bow to them. But make no mistake about it. Our culture is constantly pressuring us to bow down to idols. See, an idol is is something that we put above God. And so money can be an idol. Sex can be an idol. Prestige, power, status, All these things, fame, all these things are kind of idols in our culture, right? And when you don't bow down to those things that your culture worships, people are going to notice you. You're going to stick out. I remember one time when I was in Bible college, one of my part-time jobs was I I worked for a trucking company, and I worked the night shift. And so it was like a 10 p.m. shift to a 2.30 in the morning shift. And I had to drink lots of coffee to do this shift because classes started at 7. And so they had this break room, and I would just drown, like drink as much coffee as I possibly could before my shift. And in the break room, all of the truck drivers and the loaders would get together, and they knew I was a Bible college student, and they liked to have fun with me, pick on me a little bit. And one of the guys one day brought some porn in, and he flashed it up in front of my face and said, Adam, look at this. And I, and I looked away, and he, and, he, and he says this to me, what is wrong with you? And I said to him, I already have enough complications in my life making good choices and not objectifying women. That's not going to help me. And he looked at me like I had 10 heads, like, what are you talking about? See, when you don't bow down to the idols that your culture worships, you're going to stick out and it will be uncomfortable. Well, Nebuchadnezzar, he hears about this. He hears about how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused 
to bow down. In verse 13 of chapter 2, it says this. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar says to them, is it true? You guys are in my cabinet. You're in my council. Is it true that you refuse to worship the gold image I set up? And he tells them, I'm going to give you one more chance. When the band plays, he hired this great band, right? When the band plays, great band. You get one more chance. You're going to fall down and lay prostrate and worship this golden image. And if you don't, I'm going to immediately throw you into this burning furnace. And then he says to them, what God's going to be able to save you then? Who's going to deliver you from my hand then? Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to them. And I don't know which one of them said this, but man, it's powerful. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Here's what I want to do with the rest of our time this morning. I want to look at three powerful declarations of faith that they make in this response. The first powerful declaration of faith that they make is this. We don't need to defend ourselves. Here's what they're implying in that statement. They're implying this. They're really saying to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, you might be looking for a fight, but we're not. We don't have to defend ourselves. We're just going to be God's faithful servants. We're going to proclaim the kingdom, and we're going to leave the fighting up to him because he's big enough to fight his own battles. We don't have to come to his rescue and defend why we're not bowing. We're We're just going to sit quiet. And it's interesting because Nebuchadnezzar's dream, right, was that there was the statue and he was the head of gold and the stone smashes it and the stone becomes a mountain. And it's almost like he's completely forgotten that God's kingdom supersedes any human kingdom. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego make this empowering declaration of faith. We don't need to defend ourselves. We'll leave it up to him. See, sometimes... Silence is a declaration of faith. Psalm chapter 46, verse 10, it says this, Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know. Trust that God is big enough to defend himself. See, here's one thing I've learned in in my faith. The times in my life when I've argued with people who don't have faith in Jesus, times in my life when I have debated people. Sometimes I've done it really well with a good spirit and we have good, healthy discourse. There's other times when I really was terrible at it. Other times when, I remember this one conversation I had with a friend of mine who was an atheist and we played sports together and we hung out all the time together and we just got along great. But he was an atheist and I was a follower of Jesus and so oftentimes our conversations would go there. And most of the time, those conversations were really healthy and, and really good. But I remember this one time, I was just agitated one day. And we're in the car, and I'm, I'm, I'm winning this argument big time. 
right? Like I've studied up in my apologetics. I'm just like nailing it. I'm hitting every ball out of the park, like every, because I just read up a lot, you know, and I was ready to go. But I was kind of a jerk because my, 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 my objective during this one conversation, whether it was because I was agitated or, or whatnot, was just to, to win an argument and make him look stupid. And I remember at the end of the conversation, I'm like, I said, I said if, if you aren't convinced of what we just talked about, then I can't help you. And it was a real condescending comment, right? And he looked over at me and said, I don't know if I want you to help me. <laughs> and I just like, it just hit me like, oh, yeah, I might have won this battle, but I completely lost the war, right? Let me ask you this question. When someone threatens your faith, how do you respond? You put the gloves on and be like, okay, you want to go there? Let's go. I'll retaliate. Or do you trust that God is big enough to reveal himself? And you just get to be a part of that. It's not your job. Right? He lets us be his ambassadors. He lets us be part of his family. Sometimes, not always, because there's a place for apologetics and healthy discourse and dialogue and debate. But sometimes, silence is the real faith indicator. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, King, I'm not even going to... I got nothing to say. Why aren't you bowing? We don't need to defend ourselves to you. We'll let God do that. The second declaration of faith they make in this reply is, is a powerful one, just the same. They say this, our God is able to deliver us. Our God is able to deliver us. See, here's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew, that the object of your faith will always be more important than the strength of your faith. C.S. Lewis talked about that, and he said it this way, that strong faith in a weak branch will always be inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. Right? That it's, it's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that saves you. It's Jesus, Right? It's not the strength of our faith because our faith wavers, but he does not. It's the object of our faith. Sometimes we get that mixed up. We'll say stuff like, man, I just don't have much faith to believe. Well, you know what? That's okay. Just start proclaiming and declaring that God is able. Just, just say, man, I don't have faith, but you know what? God's able. And you might be here this morning and say, man, sometimes I don't even have enough faith to say those words. That's okay. Get someone else to say it for you. We have prayer after the service every Sunday right up here. We have a few folks, uh, part of a prayer team that, that would pray. If you're ever lacking faith and you're like, oh, man, I need to pray, but I just can't because I don't have enough faith, let them pray for you. Let them say that God is able. See, Romans tells us this, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Sometimes you just need to say, proclaim, like our God is able. Other times you can't say that. You need someone else to say it for you. because That's how faith comes. Now, this next statement that they make, I believe it's even more powerful than the first two declarations of faith. Because here's what they say next. Nebuchadnezzar, our God is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we still won't bow down. Man, what a powerful declaration of faith. They say our God is able to deliver us from the fire, but even if he doesn't, we won't bow down. Our faith won't waver. 
Regardless of what happens, our confidence in God won't be shaken. See, this is proof that uncertainty doesn't discredit faith. See, we think that faith is the super certainty. If we, I have faith when I have certainty. No, uncertainty doesn't discredit faith. You can have faith and still be uncertain. Because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they tell Nebuchadnezzar, I don't know if God's going to rescue us. But we have faith in who he is. We have faith in his goodness. And although they didn't know what was going to happen, they knew the outcome. We would not bow down, right? That's just so powerful. That they would go into the fire trusting God, even if it didn't go their way. See, that's when faith becomes real, Faith becomes real when you're trusting and believing God, you're agreeing with what he said, you're agreeing with who he is, and then it still doesn't go your way, and you still stand fast. Uh, Let me share with you uh, my Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego story. Uh, 18 years ago, I was uh, on staff at a church that I grew up in, and it's the church that sent me here to plant this church. And I was the worship pastor on the staff, And it meant I had to lead worship every Sunday, and I had to lead worship at our midweek services. We had a service in the middle of the week. And it was a midweek service time. It was the day before Thanksgiving. And I really didn't want to lead worship. See, one of the things about being a pastor that nobody tells you about is that you can't have an off day. (laughs) It's church time. Like, you you better get your faith ready (laughs) because you got to either preach or lead worship. See, like when Angie gets up and leads worship and Jeff and and Abby and Ian get up to speak, we don't think about this, but they can have bad days too, right? And they get up to preach and sometimes it's real hard. Well, this was one of those days for me. I was like, man, I don't want to be here tonight. I don't even like midweek services and I got to get up and like lead the church in worship. And I showed up to rehearsal that night and my friend Joe, he, he was playing drums with me. He said, hey, how's it going, Adam? I'm like, I don't know. I just I don't even want to be here. I've got to lead worship tonight. And he's like, oh, yeah, that's hard. <laughs> Gave me some empathy, what I needed. So we, I remember we, we went through the worship set. And my last song was the old Rich Mullen song, Our God is an Awesome God. You guys know that song? Really powerful song. And that's how we closed the worship set. And because it was the night before Thanksgiving, the pastor thought it would be a good idea. Why don't we have an open microphone? We'll have a couple people come up and, you know, exhort the church or give a testimony of something they're thankful for. So as soon as the mic's open, my friend Joe, the drummer, comes up and he grabs the mic and he just, he just starts to encourage the church, but he's really speaking to me, right? He says, hey, you know what? Our God's an awesome God. Even when things aren't working out, even when we don't feel like worshiping, even when we don't feel like saying, and I was just sitting there going, oh man, This is like what I need to hear. And he said, our God's an awesome God no matter what happens, anything that happens to us. Our God is an awesome God, amen? And everyone's like, yeah, that's right. And I was like, oh, I needed to hear that. Well, the next morning was Thanksgiving morning. In our church, there was a group of guys that had a tradition. They would all go on a hunt together Thanksgiving morning, get some venison. And this particular Thanksgiving, I think there was over 20 guys in the hunting party. And so Joe was part of the hunting party. And so was his twin brother, Jake. And they were in, again, a big group hunting on this farmer's land. And the farmer went to our church. And Joe's brother, Jake, was accidentally shot that morning. And Joe was close enough by where he got to spend the last bit of time with his brother. 
And I got the phone call, I think it was about 7.30, 8 o'clock, that um, Jake had been shot in the woods by another member of the hunting party. So I went to the ER, and as I walked into the ER, there was Joe to greet me, and he was just covered in his brother's blood from head to toe, because he held him in his arms and watched him take his last breath. And when I arrived, uh, Joe was there, and he said, Adam, Jake didn't make it. And then he hugged me, and he said something that I'll I'll never forget. He said, Adam, our God is still an awesome God. I almost ended up a puddle on the floor (laughs) right there in the ER um, when he said that, because I had never, ever witnessed such faith. See, that's a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego faith. That our God is able, but even if not, my faith won't be shaken. And so me and Joe and his dad and a few other people, we went into the room where Jake was, and we we said, let's pray that God brings him back to life. And we prayed, and I would love to tell you that he just jumped off off the table, and we walked off out of there together, but that's not what happened. But when we walked out of that room, my friend Joe His faith was resolute. And it is to this day. I just saw him a few weeks ago. His faith is resolute. See, that's the kind of faith that says this. Our God is able, but even if he doesn't. So let me wrap up by asking this question. What declaration of faith will you make when you're thrown into the fire? And if you haven't been thrown into the fire yet, you will be. And you can say, Adam, you're a pastor, you're a preacher, you're supposed to be positive. I'm positive. You will be thrown into the fire. Jesus told us as much. In John 16, he says, in this world, you will have trouble. But then he says this, but take heart. Because I have overcome the world. You want to find out how do I live in the kingdom of God? How do I participate in the kingdom of God and also live in this post-Christian, this post-Christian context with all these challenges? Take heart. Because he has overcome the world. So what declaration of faith do you need to make this morning? Maybe it's a a declaration of silent trust in God. Maybe you're just at a place in your life right now. Uh, you know, the furnace is raging. You don't know what's going to happen. You just, have to, you just have to silently trust in God. You know, that's a declaration of faith. Be still and know that I am God. Maybe you're here this morning and you're, the declaration of faith you need, need to make is not a silent one. Maybe you need to proclaim God is able. Maybe everything's stacked against you and and it doesn't look good. And you just need to say, our God is able. Yeah, right on. Maybe your declaration of faith just needs to be, even if he doesn't. You're believing God for something. You're believing God to come through for you. You're believing God to, to, to work in a mighty way. But you come to this place, you say, you know what, though? Even if he doesn't, I still won't bow. My faith still will not be extinguished by any fire that I'm thrown into. 
Well, let me quickly give you the rest of the story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they do get thrown into the furnace. You can imagine just how stressful and anxious that had to be. Like, they have faith, but come on. They're getting thrown into a furnace. But what happens is, after they're thrown into the furnace, Nebuchadnezzar's kind of peeking in there, hoping that he can hear him shriek and scream. I don't know. The guy was twisted and demented. He's throwing people in furnaces for not worshiping a statue. But instead, what he sees is a fourth person walking around in there with him, unharmed. And he says this, Nebuchadnezzar says this in chapter 3, I see four men walking around in the fire, and the fourth one looks like the son of a god. See, here's the thing about following Jesus. Whenever you're thrown into the fire, you can bet he's going to be with you. <laughs> he's walking around in there with him, and Nebuchadnezzar's like, this is, what is that? What do I see? I tried to like marginalize and persecute these people who are standing in their faith, and, and, and yet there's, there's a son of God walking around in the fire with them, and they're unharmed. Let me read this one last verse before we close in prayer. Isaiah 43, 2. It says this, When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord your God. Man, isn't that a powerful declaration of faith? Can I pray for us? Let's pray. Lord, I... I come before you and, and just confess on behalf of all my friends here uh, that, Lord, sometimes our faith wavers, but I'm so thankful that uncertainty doesn't discredit our faith, and I'm so thankful that, that it's really the object of our faith and not the strength of our faith that saves us. And so we're here this morning, and our confidence is in you, Lord, not in our ability to believe when the flames are roaring, when the furnace is hot not in our ability to be certain about everything, but just our confidence is in you, God. I pray for all my friends here that they're in dire need. They need to make a declaration of faith in their lives this morning because they're facing circumstances in their lives that are, are, are hot, that are, that are devouring, that want to devour them and burn them up. So Lord, I pray for those here who, who need to make a silent declaration of faith. They need to silently trust you. God, would you give them the courage for that? Or there's others here who, who just need the courage to declare and proclaim, our God is able. Lord, there's even others who, who need to settle in their hearts that even if you don't come through for them the way they're hoping, that they will not bow to the sounds and images of this culture, that they will, will not allow the fire to extinguish their faith. So Lord, I'm going to ask you to do only what you can do. No person can do it. No sermon can do it. Lord, would you give us the courage we need to take a step of faith? Lord, we all kind of wrestle with the tension of following Jesus in a, in a post-Christian culture, in a context where it doesn't make sense. And, and Lord, sometimes that can be difficult to navigate. But Lord, we're asking for your wisdom, just like you gave Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're asking for fortitude. We're asking for strength. We just need all of that and more. So God, would you give us that today? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we stand together and we'll close with the worship song. 
you for listening to our podcast. Church at the Well is a community reintroducing Jesus in Vermont through worship, service, creativity, and community.